Africa is a territory where people from outside have a right to be able to dictate and give a solution. It's about understanding contemporary Africa, the continent's current affairs, politics, economics, and the significance of Africa globally. I am Asumta Uturu. Join us every Saturday at noon here on KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. That is Spotlight Africa every Saturday at noon here on KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. And our countries are colonial structures. Africa for Africa. This is KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. In today's headlines, African-American infant maternal mortality outreach, Mayor Karen Bass's proposed public safety plan, Texas prohibits the purchase of land by your nationality, Senate bill, commentary with action and activism on black bloc invasion tactics, international news from non-NATO media outlets, along with Latin American and Caribbean news, and the community calendar. All this and more coming up. Good evening. I'm Angela Birdsong. A group of community organizations gathered in front of LAPD headquarters yesterday in response to Mayor Karen Bass's proposed public safety plan. Sylvester Rivers files this report. That coalition included the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition, Los Angeles Community Action Network, Black Lives Matter Los Angeles, White People for Black Lives, and the Youth Justice Coalition. They have been advocating to redirect resources from the LAPD to the true sources of public safety and to dismantle policing programs and tactics reinforced by Mayor Bass's plan. They all come under the umbrella of the LAPC Fails Coalition. Matios Kidane is a community organizer for the Stop LAPD yeah, Spying Coalition. But I think what we've said time and time again is this is the continuation of business as usual. A lot of these agenda points have things that are things that the LAPD have planned to do prior to Mayor Bass's arrival, right? Like we've known CSP's expansion has been in the books. This whole notion that um, there's a facial recognition technology prohibition is something that was perpetuated during um, Garcetti's tenure, right? 2021. So this seems like an effort to not, you know, uh, rustle any feathers, to, to continue things as they are, and to just sanitize the violence, give the appearance of a safe LA as opposed to actually building. We're standing up to respond to what has been called the mayor's public safety plan. Paula Minor of Black Lives Matter Los Black Angeles. Black Lives Matter has been attending and monitoring police commission meetings, advocating for reduction in police violence and murders, demanding and begging for police accountability. We continue to request that some of the ex excessive LAPD budget money be removed and allocated to the funds that we need as community resources that our people need that would help to reduce crime and uplift our community and our people. Hamid Khan of the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition. We also have to look at it politically as well. This is a game that we have seen time and again that you, you, you provide people with a completely a vague plan or priorities that people keep on thinking because the underlying factors remain that it's going to be business as usual. It's going to continue on with the same programs. There's already the mayor's talking about expanding the police force, hiring more people, uh, you know, expanding surveillance, weaponizing these drones. So it's sort of like you know this very bullet point kind of just uh, a plan that they have put out. So just you know, and what we can only go with what we can make of it. But it is extremely disappointing as well. So. Pete White with the Los Angeles Community Action Pete. Network. 
you would hope that a new administration would usher in new policies, a new vision for public safety in the city of Los Angeles. But what we've seen, what we see are bullet points that are regurgitated from plans that we've been suffering under for decades, right? And so, and it's not enough, it's not enough for us to say, you've only been there 60 days or less than 90 days. We feel like policing is a, a core issue. The fact that in the month of February, Black History Month, uh, four to five people have already been killed, that we should have the best thinking around these ideas of the new vision for public safety. And so what bullet points represent to us is just more of the same. And we know our job is to disrupt this idea that more of the same is enough. The information and report on the mayor's public safety plan was provided to us not by the mayor's office, but by the LA Times. Although Black Lives Matter had just met with the mayor a few days before, we had a meeting with her to voice our policing concerns. She did not let us know that she was working on this document, the plan, or that she was about to release the plan, nor did she respond to any of our requests for changes in policing. While the um, interview with the LA Times stated that she listed her priorities, they also quoted her as saying she believes there needs to be a change in police culture. She believes that is a change that could not be legislated. She believed that the change in culture is a leadership issue. We find that highly ironic for her to say that just after she supported the reappointment of Chief Moore, and he's been in charge and leading that culture for five or more years. Policing in the city of LA is at a very critical point. Four citizens have died at the hands of LAPD during the first two months of 2023. One tasered to death, two shot as they were having a mental health crisis, and one shot at a homeless encampment, demonstrating how city issues like homelessness and policing do intersect. Because one of the things that the mayor told us that her first priority and goal was homelessness. You cannot ignore the other issues the city demands because they all come together. So nowhere in the document is the word police accountability. This is something that we've been calling for and continue to call for. There must be change. There must be a real plan for change. And our people need that change. And we need it from our mayor. For KPFK Rebel Alliance News, I'm Sylvester Rivers. America's medical iniquities has turned giving birth into a battlefield for black women and their babies. Birthing justice flips that narrative, addressing the issues, fueling the maternal health crisis, and advocating for birthing equity for black women. Exploring this national epidemic in Washington, D.C., Georgia, Missouri, and California, the film centers on the women's lived experiences affected by current policies and the birthing advocates and policymakers at the forefront of fixing a broken system to transform the future one birth at a time. Adjua Jones, Outreach and Engagement Director for the African-American Infant Maternal Mortality with Los Angeles County Department of Health, is not part of the production team, but collaborates with them. Jones speaks with KPFK Rebel Alliance News after the film screening during the Pan-African Film Festival. The Birthing Justice film was shown, um, and the director, Monique Matthews, was here, as well as Sister Denise Pines of Women in the Room Production. So what happened was I was introduced to Denise back in mid-2022 by a colleague, Abby Land, who used to work at the CEO's office for the women and girls, uh, status of women and girls. And so Denise and I started talking about their film and when it came out, how we would collaborate on presenting it to the community. So I was able to work with her Girls Club of Los Angeles, Black Women for Wellness, Charles Drew University, Black Maternal Health Center of Excellence. And um, Denise in turn worked with Blue Shield, which is one of the partners that I work with for the Black Doula Consortium. And so they've worked to 
make it possible for us to be able to and them to be able to show the film and screen it really go around the nation and screen it at no cost to those who would see it because the benefit and the value of that is to share with our community who are not aware that black women are still dying in the birthing journey and so we want to make sure that black women um for one, our community knows that racism is the leading cause of infant and maternal mortality. That black women are going unheard or not listened to when they go in and see many of their providers, uh, which is leading to poor health outcomes, or which leads to either maternal morbidity, death, or... I mean, mortality or morbidity, which can be long-term effects. So in this nation, we have 50,000 near preventable maternal health issues that happen annually per CDC. And so this film in and of itself was so magnificent because they were able to go across the nation and go to four states, California, Georgia, D.C., as well as Ferguson, Missouri. And... I learned something. Even though I knew about Georgia and their high rates, I never knew D.C. had the highest rate of maternal mortality, which is, like, shocking to me. One, Chocolate City. One, being our capital. I'm like, okay. So this film was, you know, a highlight and is able for our community to see that we all need to come together as a collective to end this assault against women and their bodies and ensure that women are able to have some celebratory births, supportive births, that there are doulas that can help as advocates, that there are midwives also that help and are delivering babies, that we were the ones, uh, our ancestors, our foremothers, that were delivering this entire nation, right? And so it's not uncommon to us. And so making the space to have um, a black birth worker pipeline is critical here in not just in L.A. County, but our nation, that there are we want people that look like us, that understand, have lived experience, racism being one of the leading causes that has caused trauma. Even though we say the stress has impacted the body, but it's the trauma over time and the weathering that causes the body to just not be able to handle that. And then just to be in places where you're not being listened to. If you're saying, I'm having this pain, to deny access to proper care or proper assessment to say, okay, you know, maybe you're right. Normalizing everything like, oh, that's a normal occurrence in pregnancy. No, it's not. And then we have proof and data that supports that Doulas have been critical in reducing C-sections um, by providing advocacy and support, um, just the education, and then being able to bring the whole family into this, getting fathers to be able to be aware that, one, their babies are at risk of dying before their first year of birth, and that their women, whether it's a sister, mother, cousin, friend, aunt, whomever is at risk of dying in this pregnancy and birthing journey. And it's only gotten worse in our nation. That's supposed to be the most um, advanced, right? Medically advanced. And so we're doing the work to try to combat that. But it's a systemic overall overhaul that has to take place. And so that's what we're doing. This film, Birthing Justice, so thankful to Women in the Room Productions, Denise. Actually, if people want to learn about what we're doing in L.A. County, they can go to our Black Infants and Families webpage, www.blackinfantsandfamilies.org. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram as Black Infants and Families Los Angeles. And we're on Twitter, B-I-F underscore L.A. And so we have free doulas that are offered to African-American women. As of January 1st, the state of California is providing free doula services to all who receive Medi-Cal. You know, we're looking at all the health plans, and many of them are interested in getting involved in doing doula expansion. So if women have private insurance, call your insurance provider and say, hey, are you going to offer me doula services at no cost? Will you cover my doula fees? And let's make it happen. So that's what we want to do in L.A. So activating our village this year where our theme for 2023 on Black Infants and Families is Grow Your Village. So anybody who wants to be a part of our community action teams, they can get involved. Um, again, the website, they can call me at 213-541-3938. And I can direct them to any of four of our community action teams as well as many of our partners in the community nonprofit organizations that are doing the work. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Angela Bertson reporting at PATH, 31st anniversary for KPFK Rebel Alliance News.
KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. To learn more about the documentary Birthing Justice, check out birthingjustice.com. And due to popular demand, the Pan-African Film Festival presents virtual encore screenings until the end of March with new films added weekly. For details, go to path.org. Now some national news. A racist reactionary bill, Senate Bill 147, has been introduced in Texas that would prohibit purchase of land by your nationality. This is being opposed by people throughout the country. Pacifica's Steve Zeltzer interviewed retired San Francisco judge Lillian Singh, who is the co-founder of Comfort Women Justice Coalition, and Vincent Pan, executive director for Chinese for Affirmative Action, about his legislation and what it means for all people in the United States, as well as the increasing war hysteria being whipped up. This bill makes it illegal for anyone to sell land in Texas to nationals of four countries, China, North Korea, Iran, and uh, the fourth one is Russia, of course, Russia. Anyway, this bill targets nationals of four countries. Supposedly, these are countries that are considered as enemies of the United States. And therefore, this bill targets the citizens of those countries from owing, purchasing lands in Texas. What is so outrageous about this bill is that there are countries with dual citizenship that continues to be a citizen of the United States and a citizen of its own countries and could never own land. Now, I know China does not have due citizenship, but I'm not sure about Korea or anything else, but I don't want to go over there. What I'm really concerned about is a person who is a citizen of the United States is exempt from this bill. But how can anyone know whether or not that person is a citizen of the United States or citizen of China or citizen of North Korea and not South Korea? It really is a bill that is racial profiling at its worst. So we are very, very concerned about this bill because it eerily reminds us what happened in the 1800s in California when Asians were not allowed to own lands through a series of alien land acts, which was declared unconstitutional in California in say Fuji versus California. Uh, And then in the United States Supreme Court, Oyama versus California, it also declared it's illegal to target people on the basis of race in terms of owing land. It's a violation of the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution. And in fact, in the Oyama case, the opinion concluded that it is also inconsistent with the human rights provisions of the United Nations Charter. So all these issues that have been resolved historically is coming back to haunt us right now in Texas. So it's really very alarming, and I'm very, very alarmed by this. Vincent, the history of Exclusion Act, not just against Chinese, but other Asians and Japanese who were basically, their land was, uh, they were forced to sell their land, they were incarcerated in concentration camps, the United States has apologized for that and giving some compensation, but it seems like it's coming back again, uh, people targeted because of their nationality. Do you see the same concerns about this bill in Texas? Uh, well, you're exactly right, Steve. And, and you know, unfortunately, in every you know, chapter of U.S. history, immigrants and, and people of color have unfairly suffered blame for our country's you know, different problems. And I think for people of color, and in this case for Asians, it's often uh, connected with the sense that no matter uh, what we do or how long we've been in this country, uh, we're always seen as foreigners. And for those of us of Asian descent, that there's something scary or threatening about that. Uh, Asian American scholars often describe that as the yellow peril. Um, and so uh, over the last uh, few years in particular, with the way the pandemic was racialized and uh, the way that the, the rhetoric a- around the pandemic in particular targeted Asians, we've seen 
you know, not just an increase in anti-Asian hate, but we've seen um, policies like the ones in Texas that really look to exploit that fear and that xenophobia um, in ways that generalize whole classes and, and groups of people, even though they've done nothing wrong, um, and to associate them with the governments of their home country, even though they may have no connection to them whatsoever. And so I think what we're seeing in Texas is both uh, a symptom and a cause. It's a symptom of this you know, longstanding challenge we've had in the United States to live up this promise of a, a diverse democracy. But I think it's also you know, very much a causing uh, and, and uh, an effect, also the effect um, you know, of, of that type of uh, disposition. Uh, um, you know, and I think a great way to, 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 to understand it in context is to know that there are similar proposals, not all of them have yet been introduced, but beginning to pop up uh, around uh, the country. You know, not all these proposals may be uh, viable, but they're they're happening because they're tapping into, you know, this uh, this racist, xenophobic uh, uh, rhetoric, and you know, it has real world uh, implications for uh, for all of us. And of course, this is not new; it's throughout the history of the United States. Immigrants uh, built the country from all over the world, came to the United States and built the country. They built the railroads in California, and and then uh, they were living in very bad conditions. In fact, they had the first strike. One of the uh, incidents that happened was Vincent Chin in Detroit, where uh, a Chinese-American man was murdered because of a hysteria that was whipped up against Japanese for causing economic problems in this country. So it seems like this economic crisis, the anxiety that people have, that is being used to pit people against a a, a people, regardless of uh, their responsibility. I mean, the, Vincent Chin had, wasn't even Japanese, but he ended up being murdered because of his nationality. Yeah. It was really sad. That case was extremely sad because it was his wedding night. It was just the night before his wedding when he went out with some buddies to celebrate his wedding the next day he got murdered. But this kind of a situation is exactly why SB 147 could not be implemented. How would people know? Let's say even if it's, let's say 147 is so anti-Asian, but how do you, even let's say it's it's okay to have anti-Asians, how do you implement it? How can people know whether or not someone is North Korean, Chinese from China, or Chinese from Vietnam, which is a country of friendship to the United States, Vincent Chin was murdered because people thought he was Japanese. This is going to be outrageous. It's not going to be safety in this country when racial profiling is being enacted by the government and sanctioned by the government. This kind of hate will trickle down to everyday life and people are going to suffer. And of course, during the COVID pandemic, uh, Chinese Americans, Asians were targeted and it had a traumatic effect. I know in San Francisco, elderly were attacked. I mean, there was a rise of, of racist attacks. It sounds like the people who are pushing this really don't really care if, if as a result of their political agenda, people are murdered, people are terrorized. I know that in San Francisco, people were afraid to leave their homes. And this is America. People were afraid to leave their homes. And Vincent, your organization, uh, Chinese for Affirmative Action, has been fighting for the rights, equal rights uh, for all. How is this going to affect equal rights and the rights of all Americans? Because obviously, if they attack the rights of one group of people, then they could attack other groups of people. Well, Steve, you know, uh, at, at CA, we started a, a coalition called Stop AAPI Hate. Uh, and during the pandemic, you know, we created a vehicle for community members to report to us uh, their experiences of discrimination and, and bias and sometimes physical uh, violence against them. You know, more than um, 11,000 people shared their their stories with us. And, and, and then after the horrible murders in, in, in Atlanta, you know, we really saw uh, the community uh, begin to speak out and, and get engaged in, in very forceful ways. And one of the things that I, I think is striking is that when we've asked folks why they have reported to us, um, very much it's not just like a, a cry for help, uh, but it's a demand for change. Uh, so people are speaking up, uh, they are getting engaged. And uh, what we have to do to stay optimistic is to recognize that uh, unlike some of the, the past periods of history, uh, our community is stronger and more sophisticated, and in many cases, uh, larger. Um, 
And we also recognize that our struggles are, are not uh, uh, ours alone. Uh, and that by linking up with other communities that have been margin, marginalized, um, and whether that's the Latinx community, whether that's the African-American community, women, LGBTQ people, we know that there's strength in numbers. And it seems that this uh, is linked to uh, the escalation of uh, hysteria, war hysteria. We're going to be going to war with China. We're going to be going to Russia, war with Russia, North Korea. Uh, how is this uh, escalation of uh, attack on China uh, by American politicians, Lillian, uh, affected uh, communities that, that she is supposed to represent and other politicians are supposed to represent? Well, this United States foreign policies have domestic consequences that a lot of people don't understand. During the 1950s, when there was this big red scare, the McCarthy era haunted Chinese community. Whomever has any ties with China were spied upon. People were arrested and charged without representation. Some good citizens were sent to deportation hearings. People suffered, and a lot of people committed suicide during the McCarthy eras because of the foreign policies of the United States towards China. Also, for example, the anti-Muslim sentiment in our country due to the 9-11 terrible thing that happened in New York. And then now, of course, we uh, United States suddenly is in a war with Russia, even though it's a proxy war, it doesn't say it's a war with Russia, but it's a proxy war with Russia, and then Afghanistan, and now with China. China is considered an enemy of the United States. We Asian Americans are no longer going to be suffering, suffering in silence. Today, I think we have learned from the past that we need to stand up, we need to speak up, and we need to fight back. Only by doing so can we change all this against us and make our country a better country. This country is supposed to be the land of the opportunity. And yet this Texas bill, SB 147, is prohibiting Chinese, North Koreans, Iranians, and Russians from owning land. Now, I don't know why. Is it because the foreign countries are supposed to be not friendly to the United States? Do you know that Saudi Arabia owns most of the oil in Texas? Emco, for example, all 100% of the oil in Texas is owned by Saudi Arabia. Tell me, does that make sense? Thank you, Steve. Here is our KPFK Rebel Alliance International News. A series of events in a number of Latin American countries have left observers scratching their heads as they try to determine the actual political orientation of the government in each case. Don DeBar spoke with journalist Stephen Sefton about recent developments in a number of countries with supposedly leftist governments appearing to stand with Washington on some issues and against the U.S. on others. Contradictions among the leaders of Latin American countries, mixed signals in dealing with the U.S. by Brazil and Colombia and Chile, among others. For more on that, we go to the beach in Nicaragua at Pochomil and speak with our reporter from south of the border, Stephen Sefton, who is spending a little time away from Esteli. He's entitled, but he's keeping an eye on what goes on. Stephen, uh, welcome. Uh, glad to know you're at the beach having a little downtime. And uh, nevertheless, the work must go on. So let's talk about contradictions. Yeah, and the, there have been um, signs of the, the kinds of contradictions that uh, one might expect, especially on the part of the um, more social democrat aligned uh, political leaders in Latin America. For example, you may remember that uh, a, a couple of conversations ago, we were talking about the way Lula da Silva has been very critical of what he calls Russia's invasion of Ukraine, thereby uh, conveniently forgetting the eight years of war by the Ukrainian government in Kiev against its Russian-speaking population in, in eastern Ukraine, which in finally Russia felt bound to intervene to defend them. 
So he, Lula conveniently forgot all that crucial history. Um, but uh, just uh, over the last couple of days, there have been a couple of um, Iranian warships um, that have been uh, on uh, uh, duty patrolling in, in the Atlantic as part of Iran's policy of projecting its um, naval military presence um, uh, uh, more, more, uh, beyond, the, beyond the Persian Gulf. And so these two warships requested permission to dock in the um, port of the Brazilian capital, Rio de Janeiro. Sorry, Brasilia is the capital, but the, the main city in Brazil is Rio de Janeiro. And so these two Iranian ships requested permission to dock in the port. The United States tried to put pressure on the Brazilian authorities not to allow them to do so. And Brazil um, finally gave permission to the ships to, to dock in uh, Rio de Janeiro. And that's just an example of the kind of the, the toing and froing between um, uh, assertions of independence and sovereignty on the part of these governments and expressions of submission to US foreign policy. And we can see that also on the part of, um, uh, in particular, for example, of Gustavo Petro, um, the president of uh, Colombia. And he has now, uh, along with his uh, governmental colleagues, and the other authorities of the, the Colombian state, for example, the legislature, they have now taken very significant steps to normalize relations with Venezuela. Another step was announced uh, last week, um, in, oh, sorry, in, in uh, the beginning of this week, I think it was announced, that uh, Colombia would open, open four or five new consulates um, in Venezuela to attend to the needs of Colombian nationals in, in, in Venezuela. And over the last couple of months, the respective legislatures of Colombia and uh, Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela have held uh, meetings um, to, to develop their institutional relationship. There have been meetings along the uh, different points along the uh, Colombian-Venezuelan frontier, especially the main bridges leading from uh, between the two countries, uh, symbolizing the opening up of commercial relations that had been uh, heavily curtailed, if not completely stopped in, uh, in previous years as a result of the policies of uh, the previous president, Colombian president, Ivan Duque. So you've got that going on, which presumably is not entirely to the liking of the United States government. Right. But then at the same time, you have Gustavo Petro turning around and condemning um, uh, Nicaragua's government, uh, President uh, Daniel Ortega, um, and calling for Daniel Ortega to be arraigned before the International Criminal Court for, his, for the uh, Nicaraguan government's decision to expel uh, 222 uh, people that had been imprisoned in Nicaragua um, for their terrorist activities and activities financing terrorism um, that caused such damage to the Nicaraguan economy in um, 2018. Um, Which is ridiculous. If you think of all of the things going on in, in uh, Central and South America and the Caribbean, to single that out as something warranting removing the president, the head of state from office and referring him for criminal prosecution. It's like, you know, calling for the death penalty for someone with a parking ticket while you're standing next to Al Capone or something. Right. Yeah, not very much so. And, 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 and you see in Colombia itself has very deep social, it has critical citizen security problems and problems of political violence. What about Duque uh, and those guys? Send a few of those guys to some court somewhere for all the people they killed and disappeared. Well, yeah, and, and, and under Petro, there have been dozens of um, uh, people killed so far this year, uh, civilian um, community leaders and indigenous people's leaders that have been murdered um, this year. And so and, and, but he seems to be more concerned about what was essentially an, a very humanitarian gesture on the part of the Nicaraguan authorities, and because what they, the the, the people uh, can, that uh, benefited from the measure of 
being sent to the United States, those 222 people that had been in jail. Um, if they hadn't been released in that, uh, 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 as part of that humanitarian decision, they'd have spent uh, between 15, 20, 25 years more in jail in Nicaragua. For what they did. So, Imagine they, you know, look, look at the people who occupied the Capitol building in the United States for like, you know, two hours or whatever the hell they did. Right. Maybe somebody went to the bathroom uh, in Pelosi's office or something, and they're facing 20, 30 years in prison and stuff for that. These guys, yeah. people died as a consequence of what was done, you know, in, in Nicaragua that year. Not from there. Yeah, yeah, there's a there's a good example of that, Don. In, in this, there's a, a guy called um, Christian. Uh, I've forgotten his his surname, but he was a, a notorious uh, gangster, um, and and he was recruited by one of the leaders of the coup, Felix Maradiaga. Felix Maradiaga recruited um, uh, criminals to occupy one of the main universities in Managua, the uh, Polytechnic University, the so-called Upoli. And they set up a base there from which they sent out their, their gangs every night to maraud and attack and cause terror among the population of Managua. Um, and there's one very, um, the, the, the most notorious incident uh, uh, but on that those gangs carried out was the attempted murder of a student leader called Leonel Morales, who'd initially supported the protests in early, eight, in early, uh, sorry, around April the 18th, April the 19th of 2018. But he quickly realized that it was all, in fact, a very well-organized attempted coup, and he changed his mind. And because he changed his mind and was persuading because he was a national student leader, he was persuading many other young people uh, to look more closely at what was, was going on. And he was uh, uh, dragged from his home, kidnapped from his home by um, this gang at the, at the Upoli, led by this Viper character. There, Christians, this, this guy is named uh, Christian. His, um, his pseudonym is Viper. And he has now Christian been... Chimara. Christian tomorrow, right. So he has now the president of Chile, Gabriel Boric, has agreed to give Chilean citizenship to this guy who's a murderer, a thief, he's tortured people, he's kidnapped people. That's what the Chilean state has now sunk to. They've sunk to identifying with people deeply involved in organized crime and extremely serious offenses, including murder and torture. So, so but when 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 you when when you look at that, you, you you just have to ask. This goes back to what we we're talking about at the beginning: the contradictions between these, uh, the some of the policies of these social democrat leaders, like Alberto Fernandez in Argentina, Gustavo Petro in Colombia, Lula da Silva in Brazil, and this Gabriel Boric character, in, who who is currently unfortunately the president of Chile. Now. The, the, those, the, the, the crimes for which those people um, were convicted actually created a, a very serious socio-economic crisis in Nicaragua. It, it set the Nicaraguan economy back by about three years in terms of total losses. They caused huge damage to uh, public property and private property. The damage was estimated at well over $400 million. Yeah. Um, Tens of thousands of people lost their lost their jobs as a result of the economic crisis that was caused by the failed coup attempt. And but all of that just gets treated as if it doesn't matter. It's right. it's like it never happened. Do you remember that um, remark by Harold Pinter, the British dramatist, in his um, Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech, where he talks about the way in which the terrorism promoted by the United States against countries like Nicaragua, Mozambique, Angola, back then in the 80s, that has never stopped. Uh, the United States has continued its terrorist activities right up to this day. But uh, Pinter made the remark that the, because it's managed so carefully in term, by, by the Western media, it's as if these, these terrible events never happened, even as they were happening. 
as they happen. And also, uh, they act as if it's almost like an event of the weather or some other natural phenomenon. So we're going to have to come back next week. We're out of time, Stephen. And uh, keep your eye on what's going on down there and uh, let us know next week what uh, you see between now and then. And thank you. Okay. Will do, Don. Thanks very much. Look forward to talking to you. For KPFK, I'm Don DeBar. Thank you, Don. And here is more international news from the News Digest from Non-NATO Media with Polina Vasiliev. For KPFK, Rebel Alliance News, here are today's international highlights with a special focus on non-NATO media. The International Committee of the Red Cross has said the Yemen crisis is going from bad to worse as the organization does not have enough money to fund its programs in the country. For eight years, Yemen has been suffering a humanitarian crisis due to the ongoing conflict in the country, and now over 21 million of its citizens are in dire need of humanitarian aid, according to the Red Cross. Of them, more than 2 million children are on the brink of death, suffering from acute malnutrition, and almost 18 million Yemenis don't have drinking water. Imene Trebelsi, regional spokesperson for the International Committee of the Red Cross for the Near and Middle East, says the situation simply is dire. A few months ago, I visited Yemen for the first time in my humanitarian career. And let me tell you that uh, the imagery of uh, of human suffering I've seen there will haunt me forever. This was nothing like I've seen before in my humanitarian career. I've seen families of six and more surviving daily on a two loaves of bread uh, dipped in water. And this was their diet, uh, that uh, including other imagery that will that the world should uh, should not ignore and look away from uh, today. The reality in Yemen is that uh, 30 30 million people are struggling not only with an ongoing conflict with no clear resolution in view, but also crumbling vital infrastructure, limited access to all basic needs, including food, water, health, electricity, a very intense uh, economic situation that is affecting the livelihood at every corner in uh, in Yemen. Aid fund uh, shortages is not uh, a situation that only the International Red Cross is flagging. Uh, this is a reality for all humanitarian actors, which makes the situation even extra dangerous. Just to give you an example, 2021 pledging uh, a number for uh, Yemen aid operation collectively reached only 50%. Today, 27% of it was reached. So it is a pattern that has been uh, happening for the last few years and is impacting all humanitarian actors, pushing them to cut uh, their programming to cut their activities and the price is being paid by the millions of Yemenis that re- are relying today on these activities to be able to access the most basic of the uh, of the services, which means that more Yemenis will sleep hungry tonight. Uh, and more children will not be able to go to school. Uh, more women will not be able to deliver in, uh, in in hospitals or to access life-saving healthcare. This is the reality of aid fund shortages. Nigeria's Electoral Commission has declared the ruling party candidate Bola Ahmed Tinubu as the winner of the Saturday presidential election. Press TV has the details. Chairman of the Independent National Electoral Commission said Tinibu of the ruling All Progressives Congress caught the highest votes to beat 16 other contenders. That Tinibu Bola Ahmed of the APC, having satisfied the requirements of the law, is hereby declared the winner and is returned elected. In 2019, APC. Before the final tallies, three opposition political parties demanded for the cancellation of the results due to what they call massive manipulation of the results. The opposition political parties also called for the resignation of the chairman of the electoral commission. The, the electoral process has been bastardized. Uh, there have been very egregious violations and uh, a mutilation of the results and um, we feel it should not stand. Uh, so the thing is to save Nigeria uh, uh, from 
going down the road to perdition by calling out on INEC to halt the process and start all over again. We're giving them a fresh start and giving Nigeria a fresh start. That's all. Five. However, the president-elect defended the integrity of the national election and called on citizens to unite around him. Tinibu will succeed Muhammadu Buhari, who is stepping down after two terms. Nigerians have said that the president-elect will be expected to tackle a wide range of challenges affecting Nigeria. Some of the lingering challenges affecting the country are insecurity, corruption, poor infrastructure, and a large population of unemployed youths. Danjim Abdullahi, Press TV, Abuja. High inflation and the cost of living crisis keep biting hard on Italian families. Max Civili reports from Rome. Consumer Association Feder Consumatori has rung the alarm bell over the growing financial difficulties Italian families are faced with. Feder Consumatori National Observatory has found that one out of four families in Italy is struggling to cope with high inflation and rising cost of living. This, as the Bureau of Statistics is that has estimated a timid comeback in consumer confidence in February. According to Feder Consumatori, an increasing number of Italians are giving up on food quality to save money. Today, as the cost of living crisis has eroded families' purchasing power, we have recorded a 17% drop in the purchase of meat and fish and a 13% drop in the consumption of fruit and vegetables. We had asked the government to introduce significant supporting measures for the Italian families, but unfortunately our calls went utterly unheard. Prices in Italy rose more than 8% year-on-year, in 2022, jumping to its highest 12-month gain in nearly 40 years when the lira currency was in use. According to Istat, Italy's annual inflation rate registered a slowdown in January, dropping to 10% from 11.6% in December. However, the situation has turned dire for many in the country. The cost of living went up big way, too much for a young student like me. Prices have doubled over the past months. The cost of staple food items, basic ingredients has gone crazy and also the cost of energy. To me, it's a theft by the government. According to analysts, high energy prices have been the main drivers for the bulk of those increases, pushed higher by the energy supply challenges that followed the Ukraine-Russia war. The poverty rate increased significantly in Italy in 2020-2022 period. In 2021, some 2 million families lived in absolute poverty, a figure accounting for over 5.5 million people that is destined to grow. United Kingdom and European Union leaders have finalized a new deal for Northern Ireland's post-Brexit trading arrangements. Saeed Pereza reports from London. Years after Brexit, they're still talking about it. One big sticking point, the post-Brexit Northern Ireland Protocol for Trade, legislation that at one point threatened the Good Friday Peace Agreement and pushed the EU and UK to the brink of a trade war. Officials on both sides of the dispute now claim they have found a solution to the problem and they have a name for it too. The Windsor framework delivers free-flowing trade within the whole United Kingdom. It protects Northern Ireland's place in our union and it safeguards sovereignty for the people of Northern Ireland. Under the New Deal, there will be two routes for goods entering Northern Ireland from the rest of the UK. A green route with minimal checks for goods which will stay in Northern Ireland and a red one for goods which may continue into the EU after going through EU checks. Disputes will be settled by Northern Ireland courts, but some could still go to the European Court of Justice. And if new EU single market regulations are introduced, the UK government could veto them if the Northern Ireland Assembly has voted for that to happen. We are now seeing part of the United Kingdom, namely the North of Ireland, essentially being re-invited back into aspects of the EU. And that is a very big statement. And I'm sure that Brussels is hoping this will begin to, to disintegrate the overall Brexit deal. 
The details of the deal are yet to emerge, but Prime Minister Sunak faces two challenges. One is to get the approval of the Democratic Unionists in Northern Ireland, who have refused to enter a power-sharing government with Sinn Féin nationalists for months over the Boris Johnson-era protocol, which has created a sea border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. The unionists have a set of tests that have to be passed or, or they'll back out of it. Now that's an insurance policy. They don't want to lose votes. They don't want to look like they've sold out the unionist agenda. And that makes political sense for them. The big test for Sunak more than anything else is whether he can get all sides to give a tick in the box. In Westminster, meantime, the prime minister has briefed his cabinet, who seem to be on side. The Prime Minister's next challenge would be winning the approval of the Eurosceptic Conservative members of the ERG, the European Research Group, who have already said that the revised bill does not go far enough, which means that the deal is not quite done yet. And that's all in today's international highlights from non-NATO media. For KPFK, I'm Paulina Vasiliev. KPFK, Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Activism in action with Shankar Singham explains the block invasion tactic pioneer here in California during the Trump administration's immigrant crackdown. And used as recently with protests against L.A. City Council member Kevin DeLeon and previously with former Los Angeles District Attorney Jackie Lacey. Here's a Red Star commentary. Activism in action. I've heard some comments that the block invasion protests achieve very little to alter outcomes and does unprovoked harm on neighbors who had nothing to do with the issue or the subject of the protest. I will address these two concerns today, as well as provide some insight and tactics into achieving a more desired outcome with the block invasion versus a traditional marching and rallying protest. First, let's tackle the question of why certain actions are perceived to achieve very small, if any at all, gains to the issue. So to answer that question, we must ask ourselves, why are we protesting? Why are we walking? and marching down the street. What are we hoping to gain? Why are we in front of someone's house yelling at them? What are we hoping to gain? Well, the general goal of a block invasion, home protest, is to make the individual responsible, the target, his life, very uncomfortable. That's it. It's to the point where the target, the person coming home to his sanctuary, that sanctuary is taken away, wherein that individual goes to sleep at night wondering if he will be awakened in the morning to the sound of a bullhorn in his front yard or driving home after work and wondering if they might be met with scores of police cars parked, lined up on the sidewalk with a few dozen protesters chanting his name and deeds against the community. That's it. That's the intended goal. Make that person's life uncomfortable. The goal isn't to enact legislation or demand justice in a courtroom. The goal of a block protest is to make the subject of the protest uncomfortable, so much so that they consider leaving. The second part of the question is the unprovoked harm to the neighbors. The neighbors will be upset at your presence. It is important to explain to them that the reason for your presence. In explaining to them, you will find out that eight or nine out of 10 times, the neighbor will side with the target. That's a good neighbor. Regardless of their personal feeling about the subject or why you are there, this neighbor has to live next to the subject and will side with them definitely. It is important that the neighbors know exactly why you are there as it sets up the target to be admonished at a later time. And it exposes the target to perhaps some sympathizing or uninformed neighbors. You will find that this action carries over a few blocks and you'll have the entire neighborhood come out to witness the cavalcade of police and protesters and sometimes even the media in their once quiet neighborhood. If you have achieved both of the above outcomes of making the individual uncomfortable and the neighborhood aware of the person living on their block is a sociopath, excellent job. It's only a matter of a few weeks before that person, at the behest of his neighbor's request or hopefulness, put up their home for sale. And this is where the truly desired effect of the block invasion takes root and blossoms. Putting a home on the market allows potential buyers to view the home the home's location, the neighborhood, as well as find out as much information about the home before purchasing. How many people are going to buy a protest house? 
How many people are going to buy a home that was once scorned by thousands and that is easily identifiable and found online for more protesters to show up unaware that the previous owner had sold it? As the months go by, the target of the block invasion will drop the asking price of the home. And as the value of his house decreases, guess what happens to the value of the neighbor's homes that defended him? Now you've hit them where it counts, in the wallet. Here are some tactics for a successful home invasion. One, do not camp out or set up a tent in the neighborhood. Hit and go home. Come back the next day, two days later, next week. Hit it for a couple of hours, then leave. The element of surprise is the strongest and most effective part of a block invasion. Keep them guessing. Camping out and setting up tents for days or weeks at a time is pointless. The neighborhood will get used to your presence. The target will stay at a hotel until the situation blows over. It's just a bad idea to camp out all the way around. Some days, when you hit the block, take 10 people. The next, a week later, take three. A week after that, take 50. Hit them at 5 p.m. on a Wednesday. Then hit them at 7 a.m. on a Saturday. The amount of stress the target endures is a mind screw. Number two, know all the local ordinances and laws for the area that you'll be protesting. What's the curfew? What's the noise ordinance decibels? At what times per day are they allowed? All this information is found at the city clerk's website. Is the neighborhood unincorporated? Are police or sheriff going to respond? As long as you are on the sidewalk or street, you're on public property, law enforcement cannot arrest you as long as you are following the ordinances. Number three, do not step on private property. This is private property. If you are on it, touching it, standing on it, or an individual can have you removed. Remember, we are there for the neighbors. Walk the block. Make your presence known. Encourage discussion with the neighbors. You may come across the hero of the block, the neighbor that will come to the defense of the target. Do not engage. You are protesting. Engaging with him may be perceived as assault by the police. If anything from this person touches you, press charges immediately. All of this seems very dramatic. Number four. Yeah, be dramatic. Make it dramatic. Hire musicians. Hire, have the event catered. Invite food trucks to park it. Call the media and invite them to lunch. Make it an event. Make it dramatic. Lastly, as effective as this style of protest is, it is easily overcome by the target by doing one simple act. It's too simple that the thought of it never even occurred. In all of the block invasions I've done over the years, this has happened twice and resulted in an end to the protesting of someone's home. And what could this dubious and powerful act by the target is that stopped dozens of protesters from destroying the peace and tranquility of the neighborhood? Why, it's simply come out and talk with us. If a target chooses to engage in discussion, it is important to listen to why the target did what they did and the reasons why and the choices they had. If it is all laid out, nobody can blame or protest said target. Unfortunately, this is a rarity. That's all I got. Back to you. What it is, KPFK, I'm Angela Birdsong, and here is your Rebel Alliance Community Calendar Tips. Village Well Books and Coffee brings Stayed on Freedom, a conversation on the history of black power with author Dan Berger, along with panelists Robin D. G. Kelly, Michael Simmons, and moderator and KPFK Rebel Alliance news contributor Tande Sizwe Shimaranga, Sunday, March 5th, 6 p.m. at Village Weld Books, 9900 Culver Boulevard, Suite 1B in Culver City. Visit villagewell.com under events for more information. Range Projects Gallery Celebration of his Black History continues with the Wild West Side Exhibit by Gabe Galt, sharing his portraits of Captain Cowboys. Opening Friday, March 3rd at Range Projects Gallery, 3718 West Lawson Avenue in Los Angeles, 6 to 9 p.m. And Saturdays, 3 to 7 p.m. Call 323-528-6839 for more details. Julia Smith is the curator. It's going down with Margaret Love, Lester Lands, and the New Breed Band at Roscoe's, 730 East Broadway in downtown Long Beach. Friday, March 3rd. 
Well, those are our tips for today. I'm Angela Birdsong with More Than a Sparrow Productions. You've been listening to KPFK, Rebel Alliance News. Engage in any activity that shall contribute to a lasting understanding between nations and between the individuals of all nations, races, creeds, and colors. To gather and disseminate information on the causes of conflict between any and all of such groups and through any 